And uh, as you're doing that, uh, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles or how you access the scriptures. And we are going to be in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. Um, last week, we started a new series after we finished the book of Philippians in the New Testament. We're now in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. We're over about the next five or six weeks or so. We're going to look at some key themes throughout the book of Jeremiah that really focus in on one very important thing that all of us from time to time in our life, or maybe for some of us, it's frequently God calls us to come back to him. He calls us to come back. This whole series is called Come Back and looking at the different areas that God was calling his people thousands of years ago to come back. And now it's same for us today. So in the, in, the, in the scriptures, because God loves people, not because God doesn't like people, sometimes we think that, God gives us prophets, and that's what Jeremiah was, a prophet, which was God's mouthpiece to his people to say, you've gotten off track, you need to come back, you need to come back to the things that I've called you to be about in your life. And so we, we're looking at Jeremiah because Jeremiah is coming to a, a group of people, and before we get into specifics of today, which will be chapter 2, the first 13 verses, is to understand, again, a little bit of the background of what we're looking at in the book of Jeremiah. Really important. So Israel, being God's people, was incredibly blessed by God. They were brought out of Egypt through the wilderness. God places them in this land. He's promised them it's the most amazing land on the face of the earth. And yet in this amazing season of prosperity, what do they do? They turn their back on God and they walk away over and over and over again. And where we pick up the story with Jeremiah is actually what's happened is that Israel's become two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. They've now separated. There's infighting. Now they've separated. And Jeremiah comes primarily and talks to the southern kingdom. But their issues that they're dealing with, and the reason God has called Jeremiah, three, there's, big, there's a lot of things, but three big things that they keep violating. Their leadership has become corrupt. The way that they lead the people, the leaders are. The second thing is that they become, uh, they've been seeking after idols of all the other nations around them, so they've turned their back on God. And then the third thing, which is interesting, very appropriate for today, you know the reason also Jeremiah was called to talk to God's people is because they were actually mistreating immigrants. Isn't that interesting? So God was actually speaking thousands of years ago about how we, as God's people, uh, treat those who are from, from other countries around us. So those are kind of the big three God's calling us, he's calling the people back to in him. But as we look through this, there's, there's some things that I think really highlight for us what God is pulling us back and drawing us back into. And so today, um, we're gonna, there's an image that God uses in this whole focus of today is, is coming back to life. Um, and what I mean by that, if you were here last week, the, the end of last week we talked about where Jesus had this discussion with his disciples and the discussion focused around people who were leaving. Because they were saying, hey, it's too hard to follow this rabbi Jesus, and so I'm gonna, I can't do this. And so then Jesus turns to his, the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And if you remember Peter's response back to him, he says, where are we going to go? He said, only you have the words of eternal life. We can't find that anywhere else. And so kind of picking up from that and jumping into this week, um, what I'd like to do is start by actually looking at verse 13 before we look at the rest of the passage to talk about life. Because God is using a really powerful image to demonstrate the difference between the life that you and I try to create for ourselves and the light that life that he desires to give us. It's really a very important fact. It's throughout scripture, but, but this one is very pointed for us to look at. So if you have your Bibles, let me just read verse 13 and then we'll let that kind of frame how we're going to walk back through the passage. So in verse 13, God through Jeremiah says this. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot or can hold no water. 
so what's going on there? So for us, we're like, we read cisterns and like, I don't get it. Nobody, anybody have a cistern in your backyard? Probably not, right? In this day, in that day and age, when they were writing, that's the way they would keep water and they would hang on to water. So they would have a well or a cistern that would actually hold water in the ground. And the way that those, those cisterns were made is they were made from some kind of a plaster that they would put in the ground. But the problem in Palestine, and which has been true for all throughout the centuries in Palestine, is that they're subject to tremors and earthquakes periodically. And when you have some kind of plaster or concrete in the ground and then something shakes around it, it has a tendency to do what? Crack. And so what was happening is that there were cracks in the cisterns that people were trying to hold their water in, and all the water would seep out. And just when they thought they had enough water, they checked the cistern and it was dry. So they devised some way to use some kind of a lime plaster to kind of patch the cracks all over the cisterns, but it didn't work because tremors would happen, age would happen, and then cracks would happen, and then what? The water would be gone. So God is using this image to his people. They know vividly what it is to have a cistern, and he's saying, listen, the life that you're trying to live is like trying to maintain a cistern that keeps cracking and keeps seeping out all the water that you think is going to sustain you. When you, what you've walked away from is what? The fountain of living water. Which means you don't need a cistern to hold it. Why? Because it constantly produces water. This is the same imagery that Jesus used when he encountered that woman at the well. And he talked about, listen, you can keep coming back to this well, but you're still going to thirst. But if you knew who you were talking to, the fountain of life, the spring of living water, then you would no longer thirst. So the, the imagery that we're looking at in this passage is that God's comparing what Israel has done on their own, which is, listen, you're trying to create life, and it's dripping right out of what you're trying to hold where you can have life that I provide for you if you come back to me, which is a call that he gives to us today as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of work our way through the passage. So jump back to, to verse uh, 4. We're going to look at verse 4 and walk through uh, primarily uh, those, those sections, and then we'll jump back to the beginning of the passage as well. But the first four things I want to touch on is this imagery of a cistern and what it looks like in our life when we try to dig our own cistern where we try to pat, pat, patch it and repair it and maintain it and try to hold water, and we can't seem to maintain it. What does that look like in our life? There's, there's four things that are highlighted that God's words through Jeremiah. So look at verses 4 and 5. The first thing that you and I have a tendency to do when we're trying to live life disconnected from God, build our own cistern, is that we begin to blame God in our life when things don't go right. So look at verses 4 and 5 in this passage. So it says this in verse 4. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. So listen to what he says. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? What is God saying through Jeremiah? He's saying, how is it that your, your, your fathers, your ancestors, found fault in me? after all the things that I had done for you, that you still found a way to critique me and to disconnect from me. So remember, he's talking to a group of people who have lived a history where they were in bondage in Egypt. They've been set free. They were standing on the edge of the seashore when the Red Sea parted. They saw miracles of manna in the desert, and God gives them this land, and then he says to them, why is it that throughout your history you still find fault with me? That somehow what Israel has said to God over and over and over again, you're good, but you're not good enough. That your blessings are wonderful, but they're not good enough. That's why we constantly turn and walk away. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but do you ever blame God for things not going right in your life? As you ignore all the things that he's done in your life, that you find the one thing that you think God has not been, he hasn't come through on, and then you blame him for that thing, discounting all the things that he's given you in your life. That's human nature. 
That's what Israel did throughout the centuries. That's what we do. We'll come through a great season, and God's wonderful. Then one small thing goes wrong, and what happens? God, why did you do this to me? God, why did you leave me? There's the assumptions that we make. It's kind of like this. It's like, now, this works for me because I own a Toyota Camry. Let's say somebody gave you a brand new Toyota Camry. Okay, I have a 2006, and I love it, okay? Not trying to sell Toyotas, all right? But I, they give you a brand new Toyota Camry, okay? That means you have no payments. That means that it's brand new. It's under warranty. Anybody takers on that one? Yeah, okay, I guess the first service are Camry people. You guys are like what, like Ferrari people? I guess it's not good enough for you. So, so you get whatever your car is that you like. Okay, you get a brand new car, and it's great. You drive it, and you feel good about it. There's no dents in it. Everything, it has that new car smell. You like it, and you drive it for about a year. And after a year, you know, it's still a new car relatively, but you notice, you know, you were in the, in the grocery store one time in the parking lot. Someone opened their door too fast. There's a little ding, right? You know what I'm talking about? And so it's pretty new, but it's, got, it's showing a little wear. Then 18 months in, a little bit more, and then two years, and you're looking at it and thinking, man, this car's getting old. And the reason you think that is because one day you're backing out of your driveway and you look across the street and your neighbor has just purchased a brand new Mercedes. And you're driving your two-year-old Camry now. And you're looking at that Mercedes going, wow, look at that. Not only does it not have any bumps or nicks on everything, it's like a Mercedes. And as you're driving around, you become really discontent with your Camry. Even though it's only two years old and maybe only has 15 or 20,000 miles on it, it's not what? A Mercedes. That's exactly what we do to God, God all the time. And we blame him. God, this is your fault. You, and we, we discount all the things he's done for us. Wh why do we do that? Because we've moved on from living water to our own cistern and said, okay, I'm going to create life over here that's going to make me happy. And we're working really hard to maintain it. And then suddenly when it doesn't work, who do we blame? Not ourselves. We blame God for that. That's what Israel kept doing. How many times, if you read through Israel's history, did they say, oh, I wish we would have never left Egypt? Oh, I wish we would have never left slavery and bondage and domination. Doesn't make sense. Why? Because they didn't think God was somehow treating them fairly. Then it leads to the second thing. Draw your attention to verses 6 and then verse 8. And that's this, that we, when we dig our own sister and we stop looking to God. We don't look to him anymore in our life. So what does it say? So going on. So Jeremiah says this. God's speaking through Jeremiah in verse uh, 6. He says, they did not say where is the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us into the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and dark, uh, deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through where no man dwells. And then look at verse 8. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law but did not, did, uh, not know me, the shepherds transgressed against me, the prophets prophesied by Baal and went out after, th and after things that did not profit. What is God saying? What are they no longer saying? They're no longer saying, where is God? They're not even asking the question in their daily life, where's God at work? Where is God in my life? That's not even a part of their equation anymore in terms of how they, they manage their daily life. They've completely stopped going to God for anything. Ever had a season in your life where you've forgotten God because you're too busy trying to make your life work and you didn't turn and ask God what he's wanting to do or what he wants to provide or what he's up to in your life? Why? So we just forgot. Now, I, I know in my life, this is true, we, we'll go to God for the big things. Like, we really want this job, it's a part of our career, so we pray God is if your will, or, or maybe we're going to purchase a house, or maybe we're, we're going to relocate, or something really big, significant life change, and we'll go to God. But on a daily basis, how many times do we turn to God? Not that often. 
we give him kind of the customary, we'll pray at mealtime, but do we really turn to him? And not to over-spiritualize, it's not that when you're making a lane change on the freeway, you have to seek God's will. Please don't, okay? You might crash. But in, in decisions you and I make every day, do we go to God? Or are we so convinced that we can manage and navigate what's going to make us happy? We don't need to go and ask God because we've already figured this one out. We do this all the time. I'm guilty of this. A couple months ago, so we had, we had purchased a TV a couple years ago, and uh, I had kind of gone down a road of like getting the best deal, which I like to get good deals. And so we went on last year's model on a really good discount, and it was the brand of TV that I had had for like six or seven years, so I trusted it. So I didn't get a warranty other than the manufacturer's warranty. of like, oh, we're set for like the next seven to ten years. Two years later, that TV starts going out. I'm like, no way. No warranty, everything, of course, just after the warranty and all that stuff. So I got to buy another TV. So I go to Co Costco. Costco has great warranty. So I'm like, okay, this time we're going to play it safe. So to go to, go to Costco and, you know, spend some time, I love looking at TVs. Any, anybody with me? Anybody get stuck in the first section of Costco and you're like, you can't get out, right? They do it on purpose. They know why it's there, right? So I'm looking at TVs and so I, I'm like, okay, here's this year's model and there's last year's model. Last year's model works good, so I'm going to buy last year's model. Problem is, they don't have last year's model in stock in the store, so you got to order it line, online. I'm like, fine. So go to the kiosk, order it. Takes about a week and a half. TV shows up. I'm like a kid on Christmas morning. I love new TVs. You can ask him. I'm like taking it out of the box. I'm so excited. I get it all set up. I turn it on, and there's this line right across the screen. I'm like, no. So I troubleshot. I went through all the you know, troubleshooting. It's got a, some adjustment. I can do nothing. So I'm like, ah, I've got to call the manufacturer. So I call the manufacturer, and I said, listen, this is what's going on. And so over a period of three days, for about a total of four hours, I was on the phone with the manufacturer. They're trying to troubleshoot it and figure it out and figuring out, if is, it, is, it, you know, is it their thing? Is it a Costco thing? Whatever. Finally, after three days and four hours, I get to like the fifth or sixth person that I've talked with. And finally, this guy says to me, you know what? What you should have done at the beginning is you should have just gone back to Costco. I'm like, well, thanks for telling me now, right? So it was a Sunday afternoon. I was tired, but I'm like, I'm going to deal with this TV. So Jordan was home. I said, Jordan, help me. We're taking the TV back. I put it in the box. You know, it's like, the, it, you know, when you, when you walk out of Costco with the TV in your cart, you feel proud. Guys, you know this. Guys will yell across, you, across the parking lot, yes, right? When you come back with a broken TV, it's like the walk of shame, right? <laughs> You walk into the return line, and you're just kind of like your head's down, and you're like, yeah, it's broken, you know, and guys are like, you know, crying with you. And so you, I, I give them the TV, and Costco's great. They're like, we're going to refund the full price. I'm like, great. And I said, okay, I just want to get another one, and then same problem. We don't have it in stock. you got to go to the kiosk. And I'm like, no, I know where this leads. This leads to a damaged TV that i got to go through this whole thing. And so I'm standing in the TV section, and guess what do they have in stock? This year's model for a lot more money. So in a moment of frustration and exhaustion, I said, just forget it. I'm just buying this year's model. So I did. And they had it. And Jordan and I loaded in the car. And by the way, when I went out, guys are like, yeah! <laughs> and I got home, and I set it up. And it was not as exciting as when I first set up this other TV. And then a couple days later, I'm like, I'm sitting there and going, what did I just do? What did I just do? And Kim and I have been talking for a couple months about even in the, the things that we don't think are significant, just pausing just saying, God, what, in this, just give me wisdom, what you want me to do. I never even gave that a thought. I didn't even give God a thought when I'm standing in Costco in the middle of Sunday afternoon chaos and being tired. I'm just like, just get the TV and be done with it and then spend way too much money instead of saying, God, what do you want to do here? Maybe God wanted me to walk out of Costco without a TV because he had something better for me. But I'll never know because I never went to him. 
Now, don't think, you're like, Pastor John, you're over-spiritualizing. No, I'm not. Buying a TV at Costco is a spiritual experience. <laughs> you better seek God when you go into Costco. So, but think about in your daily life, how many times do you pause and say, God, what are you in, doing in this moment? Because what, what, what did Jeremiah say? He says, they, they did not say, where is God? They stopped saying that. Instead of asking the question, God, what are you at? What are you at work in my life? What are you up to? Then there's a third thing. Look at verse 7. Digging our own cistern also has to do with the, the fact that we squander God's provision. So verse 7, God speaks through Jeremiah and says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. What is God saying? He's speaking to a group of people. Remember, they just come through all of what they've gone through in their history. And then God gives them the greatest land on the face of the earth. It's the most prosperous, prosperous, it's the most beautiful, it's the place, it's the prized possession. God gives it to them, this plentiful land filled with good things, and what do they do? Shortly after, they turn their back on God. They start worshiping idols, they, stop, they start doing things that he's told them not to do, they start turning their back on God. This very thing that God has given to them to be what? A blessing to all the nations around them, they now become self-centered and selfish, and they squander the very thing that God blessed them with. Think about that in your own life. When God gives you and I something as a blessing in our life, he always gives, us to for, gives it to us for two reasons. One reason, because he loves us. Second reason, because he loves the world. You can't separate. He doesn't just give it because he loves us. He gives us because he loves us, and he loves the world around us. So we are blessed to be a blessing. So that means whatever God has entrusted us with, he's expecting for us to enjoy it, but also to extend it and invest it in people around us. Israel wasn't doing that anymore. They were squandering this thing that God provided. Jesus tells a, a very, very powerful story in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 25. We call it the parable of the talents, which were measures of money that, that, that three individuals were given as their master went away on a trip. And it wasn't uh, spoken initially, but you can tell there's an assumption. As he gave them the money, he was assuming they would risk it. He was assuming they would invest it, they would do something with it. And when he comes back, what happens? is the one who had five invested and had ten. The one who had two has now four. And then the one who had one, what did he do? Anybody remember? He was afraid. So he buried it in the ground. Do anybody remember what the master said to that servant? He called him wicked. Wicked. Wait, 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 wait. He was safe. He didn't lose it. Nobody stole it. He gave back to the master what the master had given him. But the master didn't want back what he had given him. He wanted more. He wanted the return on the investment. And sometimes you and I even read a story like that, and we miss it because this is what we think. We think, well, I don't have what it takes to really do anything for God in my life. And we look around at all the other more talented people, and we think, yeah, they, they're the ones that God's calling. No, no, there's a reason why there were different amounts of talents given to different people. It had nothing to do with value. They all were expected to have a return. So whether you think you're the most talented or least talented, God has already invested in you, and he said, listen, I've given you a life to live. Don't squander it. But when you're too busy patching your cistern, you don't have time for God's purpose in your life. Because you're trying to create your own life. You're trying to make yourself happy. And every time you think everything's together, guess what happens? Earthquake shows up and there's another crack. Which means a whole other load of work and all the water drained out of your cistern. When God says, listen, leave your cistern, come back to living water, and I'll show you meaning and purpose. Which is what we talked about last week. It was the first week of this series. And then there's a fourth truth about what it looks like when we dig our own cisterns, and that is that we exchange what's real for what's false. So look at verse 10 and 11. Again, God speaking through Jeremiah says this. He says, For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, 
or send to Qatar and examine with care. See if there have been such, has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for, what, uh, for that which does not profit. What is God talking about? God is actually saying to his people, look at the other nations. Take a look at them. They serve false gods. They serve idols, and yet they're sold out for their idols. They're faithful to their idols, even though they aren't gods. And you had the God of the universe is your father, and you exchanged your glory for what? For things that don't benefit you. He's using other nations as this example. You have bought into the lies of the world and exchanged what is true for what is false. See, what's the false reality? I can make my own life into something. I can bring meaning and purpose and value to myself all on my own. That's the lie we buy into. What makes us valuable is that we are the objects of God's love. That's what makes us valuable, that God would love us even though he knows who we are. He knows our brokenness. But this exchange, and all of us have done this at one time or another, that we've bought into something that there were suspicious it could be a lie, but we just hope it's true, right? You never been, anyone ever been gullible and someone's trying to sell you something and usually you're pretty savvy, but you're like, man, this could be it. I start believing this. I'm like, but you know, even in your pessimism, you're like, but maybe there's a little hope this could be real because it's such a great deal, right? So a number of years ago, Kim and I were with some friends out in Fillmore and it was their, uh, their like kind of annual festival. And, um, and so we're out in, in uh, I don't know what possessed us. Kim was looking for a person. They had some vendors there that were a part of kind of this street fair kind of a thing. And so we're looking at vendors. And, and so, of course, you walk up, and the vendor has all these name brand bags in Fillmore. Nothing against <laughs> Fillmore, but just, you know, like Fillmore's the mecca, right, of Gucci, right? <laughs> so we walk up, and there's this Gucci bag, and it says Gucci, and it, like, looks like the real thing, and so Kim picks it up, and we're looking at it, and, like, like, I have any expertise. I'm like, honey, let me look at it. Like, I'm gonna know any better, right? <laughs> so I'm looking at the stitching, and I'm looking inside at the zippers, and I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, there's no way this is Gucci, but there's a part of me like, this could be it. We could have the deal of the century. You know what they were charging for it? It's like 10 bucks. <laughs> I'm like, we found Gucci in Fillmore. So she bought a purse, and her friend bought a purse, and we walked away like, wow, what a deal. Until like day two, the zipper breaks. Day three, the Gucci thing falls off. Day four, the strap breaks. Day five, the, the, the seams start to burst, and then you're like, I don't think it was a Gucci. <laughs> but in the moment, you're like, it could be. Ever bought into that lie? What is that? That's a cistern. That looks good on the outside until you get close and you see the, the fractures that you're going to have to maintain, and it never produces what you've exchanged the truth of who God is for the lie that something's promised you that it can't deliver on. So if we understand that's, that's the reality of what life looks like when we walk away from God and we try to do it on our own, then there's three things. So go back to the beginning of the passage of chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, because in those three verses are three things that what it looks like when we come back to the living water that God is desiring for us that truly brings life to us. So look at verses 1 and 2, and these are three things that you and I have to be called back to remember about our lives. The first one is this, remember your passion. So going to verse 1, Jeremiah 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love 
as a bride. What is God saying? He's reminding them, remember? Remember? Remember that season, that time when you had a passion and a love for me and you expressed it and I expressed my love to you? Remember that, that connection, that devotion that we had, we, we, that love that we had? He's, he's helping them to remember. Why? Because they've forgotten. And this is true for all of us. That's why if you get to the end of the New Testament, you go to the book of Revelation, and God is going after churches for what they've lacked, and he goes after the church at Ephesus, and he says something really profound. He corrects them. Why? Because they lost their first love. And the church at Ephesus was a significant church, and yet they still were lacking. Why? Because they lost the passion that they originally had in following Jesus. And because of that, they were lacking. God says the same thing here. Listen, the reason that you've walked away is you've forgotten. You've forgotten how good it is to be in love with God. You've forgotten that passion, that connection that's supposed to be there that God calls us back to. And that's something we have to constantly be reminded of, is that going back to what we first understood about God, because over time we complicate our faith. It doesn't mean that we go back to an infancy or immaturity in our faith, but we go back to, why did I make this decision in the first place? What was going on in my life that turned me to God and made me passionately go after Him? And remember that. Why? Because when we forget disconnect i mentioned this last week but the highlight one of the highlights for me as a pastor is doing water baptisms which we did five last sunday and it was amazing and it is it, it was one of those moments for me it's very surreal because because baptism and I've, you've heard me say this a million times baptism to our faith is what a wedding is to marriage it's that that celebration of what that love that's inside and now it comes out and everybody gets to be a part of that so so water baptism last week was like going to a wedding but the coolest part is I get to stand in the water next to people while they share their journey and how they discovered who Jesus is in their life. And then talk about the profound change that he has brought to their lives. There was one moment I'm standing there like, and I literally felt like I needed to pinch myself. Is this real? I get to do this? I mean, this is a, one of the most significant moments in this person's life on earth, and I get to be a part of this. Why? Because they're talking about this connection with God that many of us have forgotten. And that's one of the reasons I push, and you hear us, we push hard, go to water baptism, even if you don't know who's getting baptized. Because some of you need to remember what it's like to fall in love with God all over again. You've lost that. But re-engage with your, what, that passion that you once had for God. Go back to the beginning, in a sense, and remember that connection that you had. That's what God was calling his people to do thousands of years ago, and he still calls us to the same thing today. Which leads to the second thing of coming back to this living water, is remember your commitment. So he goes on in verse 2. Not only does he says that you're a bride, and he remembers the devotion of youth, but he says this. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. What is God referring to? He's talking about the wilderness that God brought Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, the desert. And he said, but you followed me. You were committed to me. Now, doesn't mean that they were perfect because we know in the desert they complained a lot. But they were there and they were committed to God leading them into the promised land. Even when God didn't, because here's what you and I, if we re rewrote the Bible, you know what we'd do? We'd go from Egypt to the promised land, right? From slavery to prosperity but there's a wilderness in between but they stuck with god through that even though there was unfaithfulness god saves a generation and brings them in and he's reminding them of this why because there's a commitment that you and i have to following jesus that sometimes and many times is not based on passion and emotion it's based on covenant which means i make a covenant to follow god even if it's difficult 
And God has already made a covenant to me to save me through Jesus' death and resurrection. And he will never renege on that. He will never go back on that. And so he wants the same for us. It's the same imagery as we've just talked about with marriage. That's why when people, two people get married, what are they doing? They are making a covenant. Why do we say for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health? Why? Because poverty's coming. Why? Because sickness is coming. Because difficulty is coming. And then when you're in the middle of that, you may not feel the passion anymore. But you know the commitment that you have. You know that you've made covenant with that person, so you stick with them. If you're married today, you most likely have something on your left hand, on a finger. It's called a ring. Why do you have that? Oh, it's a really cool piece of jewelry. Yeah, that's nice. That's not why you have it. You have a ring on your finger for two reasons. One is to remind you of your covenant. The other thing is to tell everybody else you're in covenant. And so when you have that ring on your finger, you should look at that ring. And, and, and there may be times you're like, you know what? I love my spouse, but I don't know if I like them right now. But I made a covenant before God that I would be committed to them. It's a reminder. And that's why God says, remember, even when it was tough, you followed me. And so that's that thing. How do you and I stay connected to the, the source of living water? Even when it's tough, we don't check out on God. We stay connected to him. But we have a tendency to pull back and a tendency. And I think sometimes maybe even maybe a little different than what Israel is. When we get comfortable, I think we pull out. That's what I've seen. I've seen a lot of people have determination and difficulties. But I think sometimes we become so comfortable that even our commitment to God becomes comfortable. So we back off. I have a friend in Ventura who was a church planter before I was a church planter, and he had planted, planted a very successful and significant church. And so when we were in the process of looking at buildings for our church, uh, I sat down with him one day. I said, i got to pick your brain. You're way further down the road than we are on this. I need to kind of tell me the ins and outs of building process and all that. And so he was telling me that, and then, then he said something I will never forget. And this church had met, met in like five different locations over a period of, I don't know, like five or six years. And finally they had gotten into their building, and and so I thought, wow, you guys have really arrived. And then this is what he said to me. He said, you know, there's moments I sit here at my desk in this building, and I wish we were back when we were homeless as a church. And I'm like, I was not ready for that. I'm like, are you crazy? Because we're homeless as a church. I'm like, I don't like homeless as a church, right? And he goes, no, I'll tell you why. He said, something happened when, when we crossed, crossed over that threshold from being a homeless church to having a home. He said, everybody's commitment level dropped. He said, when we were like homeless and moving from place to place, he goes, about 90% of the church was invested in ministry and set up and tear down. Everyone was all in. He goes, and then we got into the building and he goes, now we've dropped to like 50%. Because people are so comfortable, they're like, ah, somebody else will do it. Even though they made a commitment to be a part of what God was doing. That sunk in big time. When he said that, I thought, wow, there's the downside to arriving to getting everything that you think that you want is what your commitment may wane. But if we're going to follow God and stay connected to living water, we take our commitment seriously. And then the final reality, look at verse 3, is remember your identity. So in verse 3, God goes on and he says, Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who ate of it, incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. What is God saying? He's saying, I have set Israel up as my holy, chosen, privileged people on the planet. In fact, if anybody's ever come against them, they will be destroyed, not Israel. These are my people. He's saying, let me remind you who you are. You're my chosen people. 
to not be exclusive with God, but to be the demonstration of what it looks like when a nation is turned to God for the rest of the world. You are that. That's your identity. This is so important. That's why he says, why in the world are you building your own cisterns? Why in the world are you spending your time and energy trying to patch cracks that are only going to crack again when you should be living out the identity that you are a people of living water? That's who we are. Why is that important? Because you and I go off the rails and walk away from God when we forget who we are. We take on other false identities. We go after idols. We try to be something that we're not, and then we get disconnected from God. And that's why God is saying this to his people. Listen, remember who you are. You're my chosen people. Significant. One of my favorite Pixar movies, and this is because my kids grew up on it, and I have the thing almost memorized, is Toy Story 2. I love that movie. In fact, it was funny. Last night I turned the TV on, and it happened to be on. It's like the last 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, what the heck? Let's watch it. And it's crazy when you haven't watched a movie for a long time, but you watched it a million times. I knew every line that was coming. In fact, Kim was in the other room, and she goes, oh, I love this movie, because she could hear the lines, because <laughs> I'm like having those warm feelings of Jordan and Courtney sitting, you know, not fighting in front of the TV, watching, you know, those moments. But as I was watching that, it just it brought back the whole movie, and I was thinking, thinking, the reason I love that movie is there's such powerful imagery. Yes, there is something that is redemptive about Pixar, okay? So watching this movie, so if you don't know the story, long story short, you know, Andy, who is this cowboy toy who belongs to Andy, uh, so Woody is the toy, and so he, he realizes in the second movie, he's not just Andy's toy, he's a part of Woody's Roundup, which is this whole collection of toys, had his own TV series and everything, okay? He was like, he doesn't know that until he gets bought up at a, accidentally bought at a garage sale and ends up finding out that he has all this stuff that he's a part of. He's famous. So he's got Jesse, and he's got, you know, his horse Bullseye, and he's got the Prospector, and he's got this whole series based on him as the centerpiece. So when he discovers that, he's like, I'm somebody. So he kind of is now fine, and he's forgotten all his friends, and he's for kind, of, kind of forgotten about Andy because he's living this new life. He's living the dream until he realizes he doesn't have any friends. And his destiny is, because now he's a collector's item, is this muse toy museum in Japan that he's going to sit on a shelf the rest of his existence. And it starts to hit him. He's lost his friends. He's lost Andy. And he has no life. And I love there's this part in the movie where he's just, you can tell it's the full weight of what he's lost has hit him. And then he grabs his boot and he starts rubbing off the paint that this guy had repainted and kind of cleaned him up that was on the bottom of his boot to reveal what? Four letters that spelled Andy. Why? Because Andy had written his name on his boot to say, Woody belongs to me. And that is such a powerful image, even more so, that the God of the universe has written his name on your heart through the blood of Jesus so that you belong to him. And we cannot forget that. Your life is not your own. I am so glad my life is not my own because when my life was my own, it's terrible. It's a cistern that can't hold water. But when my life belongs to Jesus, then it's life doesn't mean it's easy, but it means that there is this source of life that I don't have to maintain or produce that God brings. And that's what he's calling us back to. He's calling us back to that. So I want to close with this, uh, and, and then we're, uh, we'll, uh, we'll conclude, but it's just a real important point of response. So as many of you know, uh, in the morning when, when the leaders gather in the worship team, we, we spend some time, extended amount of time, just praying We've planned all week for Sunday, what Sunday's going to look like, but all along the way, we're like, God, what are you saying? Because we don't want to miss what you're saying, and that includes literally just before we start first service. And so as we were praying, 
this morning I was uh, just, and I didn't, at first I didn't know why God was taking me to this moment in my life. It literally took me right back to a place when I was in middle school when I had, many of you know the story, that I ran away from the, uh, for a day because of anxiety and fear. And so he took me back to this moment after I had, had run because I didn't want to go to school. I had run away for a day. I had, been, I had gone for like six or seven hours and it started to rain and I had to find my way to shelter. So I found my way back into our garage, which we had a detached garage and it was in the backyard. And so I snuck in and nobody saw me. At least I didn't think anybody saw me. And so I was tucked away in this corner and just shivering because I was soaking wet and I was cold. But, you know, pride and fear doesn't let you come out because I don't want to be found out. So that day was a normal work day for my dad, but he hadn't gone to work because he and my mom were, had gone everywhere to try to find me. And so he comes out in the garage and he's at his workbench and he's working away and, and I'm in the corner and I'm just watching him. Then he goes back in the house and then he comes back out and he does it again. And he did it three times. And, and I was figuring out, well, I couldn't figure out what he's doing, but, but I was in the corner. And, and the third time when he came out, he just stopped what he was doing at his workbench. And he turned the corner and he looked straight at me and he said, I know you're there. And I'm like, oh no, I thought he had done such a great job of hiding. And then this is what he said. He said, I'm just waiting for you to come out. So I knew at that point, there's no sense in hiding anymore. So I stepped out. Now, when you're in middle school and you do something as bad as what I did, you know you're going to catch it. I had great parents, but they, were, they would discipline us. And so my dad said, why don't you come in the house? And so I came into the house, and I was, I was expecting to get it like I have never gotten it before. My dad didn't say anything. He said, why don't you go? and change your wet clothes, come back out. And then I know, oh, then they're going to talk me to death. Anybody know that? It's like one thing, you know, you get grounded or a spanking, but you get talked to death, that's like 10 times worse because it lasts forever. I do it to my kids. You can ask them, even though they're 20 and 22 now, I still do it to them. So anyway, so I come back out and I come to the dining room and they're sitting with a bowl of soup and some bread and my parents are sitting there. They said, come sit down. I'm like, oh, wow, they're going to feed me before they kill me. That's what I'm thinking, right? And this is all they said to me said, we're so glad you're home. We were scared to death, but we're glad that you're home. That's all they said. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. How long am I grounded for? How, what's my punishment going to be? They're like, no, you're, we're just glad you're home. That was the start of a change in me because I realized I had parents that really did love me unconditionally. But, but here's what, as God took me to this moment as I was praying this morning, this is what he highlighted. We know that God is a God who pursues us. That's, that's a given. When you read through the Bible, God is always going after us while we're running away from him. He continually pursues us. And there comes those moments in our lives where we stop for a moment and God is, is reaching out for us. But here's the truth on our side of it. It's one thing that God wants to find us. It's another thing is this question for us. Do I want to be found? See, here's the challenge. Being found also means being found out. Because being found means for the, for, for the first time in your life, you may have to step out of the shadows and own your own sin and brokenness. Because by the way, God already knows. That's what confession is, by the way. Confession is saying what you, God already knows to be true about your sin. He's just waiting for you to admit it. But being found means there has to be a sense of humility and brokenness and vulnerability that steps out of the shadow and says, okay, I know that you've been pursuing me, now I'm out, and here's my sin and my brokenness. And that's the only way that God can bring forgiveness to us, is if we will take responsibility for what we've done. Then he relieves us of our guilt and shame and brings forgiveness. 
And so today, in a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to close. But that's the question I have that I think God is asking today. Maybe it's been for you a season of life where you've walked away from the Lord and you got dragged to church today or just happened to come today. Or maybe it's a part of your life that you know, you know, I've disengaged from God. And today he's calling you back. But what he's asking you is this question, are you willing to be found? Will you step out of the shadows? Will you just come to grips with your sin and brokenness so that I can bring forgiveness? And then through forgiveness comes what? A spring of living water that says you never have to go back to that cistern again. You never have to repair it. You get to live the way I called you to live. So would you close your eyes? Because there's a specific point of application, I think, that that I've been praying for even before this Sunday. This week, a number of times, I just felt like the Lord was drawing my attention to something. Hear me as I share this. What I'm about to share is not intended to cause guilt, shame, or condemnation for anyone. But it's it's intended to bring something into the light that God wants to bring forgiveness and healing for in your life. So as I was praying for what it looks like to come back, like I said, for some it may be a whole life coming back that I've walked away from God and now I'm coming back. Or maybe you're like, I'm doing pretty good, but I know there's that one secret, there's that one area, or maybe two areas that I've got over here that I've just been resisting and God's calling you back. But as I was praying this week, the Lord highlighted to me that there's one specific thing that there are people in our church, and he didn't highlight an individual or even a group of people, but just overall, that there are people that call Antioch their church home, or maybe you've just walked through the door for the first time, but the area that you have disconnected from God, the place where you've been digging your own cistern and trying to bring life and happiness is in the area of sex. God has given humanity a beautiful thing that he created for a man and a woman in the context of marriage to experience in intimacy. And in your life, in this effort to try to bring happiness and life to yourself, you have taken that gift and you've placed it outside the context that God intended it for. It could be a a lifestyle with multiple partners. It could be one person that you're with right now, and you may even be planning on getting married to them, but but you're, you're sexually active and you've removed what God intended for marriage and you've placed it outside. Again, this is not to heap guilt or shame, but I think God is highlighting that because he's saying, listen, that's a cistern in your life. It's not gonna hold water. It's gonna destroy you. And he says there is a way to live a way to experience living water, and that is to do what he's called you to do. Maybe it's not sexual sin for you, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a substance that you're secretly addicted to. Maybe it's greed that you feel like money controls you. Maybe it's being driven to go after a career that you think is going to to somehow answer to all of your wildest dreams, and God is saying, those are cisterns. Stop chasing after them and come back to living water. So in a moment when I conclude in prayer, what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to ask you to simply, between you and the Lord right now, I want you to confess. Here it is, Lord. It's sex. It's greed. It's a relationship. It's a substance. Say it. In saying it, you are coming into the light and you are confessing to him. And the Bible says that when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise that God gives us. So Jesus, as we come before you right now, we know that your death on the cross took every point of sin and failure in our life 
and paid for it. You lifted our, our shame and our guilt and our condemnation off of us. You took it on yourself. And then to prove who you are, to demonstrate that you had power over sin and power over death, you rose from the dead to show us you are the way and the truth and the life. And so as we come to you today, Jesus, we bring, as we step out of the shadows into your light, we bring our brokenness before you, knowing that you are a God who's trustworthy. You're, Lord, you, you are like how I experienced my parents. You're, you're not there to, to wave your finger. You're not there to bring punishment. You're there to bring forgiveness so that we don't have to have punishment. So Lord, I pray as we confess right now, whatever is before you, that you would take our confession and then begin to cleanse us with your living water, purifying us so that we are right before you and that we are now stepping out of that cistern of our own making and into, Lord, this unending supply of living water that you desire for our lives. So Jesus, would you come and would you do that in us today as we surrender ourselves to you?